We are two weeks in now to our study of Esther, which will be our summer study together. Let me pray before we approach God's Word. Father, I thank you so much for a chance to gather around your Word as family. We thank you for the account of Esther, your faithfulness, your providence, uh, working behind the scenes in this story. We thank you that it's more than just a story, though that it's, it's history, the history of your faithfulness. We pray that you'll make us good students of your word as we study it together this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, we'll jump into chapter 2 of Esther. If you've got the Bible tucked into the pew there behind you, look on page 410. We're looking at the second chapter. If you were with us last week when we kicked off the study of Esther, the first week uh, we looked at chapter 1, and in chapter 1 you don't meet Esther, you just meet King Xerxes, or Asuras, as he's referred to here in this translation. Uh, the Greek pronunciation or the Greek uh, transliteration would be Xerxes for him. We meet him and we find out what kind of king he is and we see how uh, he exiles his queen uh, because she won't be subject to him the way he wants her to be subject to him. Uh, and uniquely in Esther chapter 1, we don't have Esther or Mordecai, who we're going to meet this week, but not uniquely in chapter 1, but unique to all of Esther, we don't see God's name in that chapter or any subsequent chapters. Esther is the only book in the Bible where God is not directly mentioned, and yet he's powerfully at work. And so we're going to continue to study and to see and to understand that as we read and study Esther together. So chapter 2, starting in verse 1. After these things, meaning after the king had banished Vashti, his previous queen, when the anger of the king Asuras had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken to the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Azuras after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since there was a regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem and the custody of Shazgaz, 
the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, this uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Azurus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces, and he gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Azurus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles, in the presence of the king. So here we are in chapter 2 of Esther. And depending on who you read and uh, if you're watching VeggieTales or whatever you may, how you may be digesting Esther, there's different takes on what we're seeing here in Esther chapter 2. I think we're, in our culture, we are probably prone to read this and, and maybe where your mind goes is kind of where my mind went. There's a show that's been on television for 22 seasons now. Now, that being said, it has like three out of ten stars by IMDb, yet it continues to create seasons. There's a show called The Bachelor. And the basic premise of The Bachelor is you have a deemed eligible bachelor who has the executives of a uh, TV station or producers of a show. They bring a harem of 25 women who he's going to date And he dates each of them, and week after week, he eliminates from the pool of women that have been brought to him until, theoretically, at the end, he proposes marriage to one of them. Now, I want you to understand, what's happening in Esther is not The Bachelor, but The Bachelor is still evidence that our world is a broken place. Maybe it doesn't look exactly like Persia under the reign of Xerxes, but it's a broken place. And when we think about these 25 attractive women from all over the English-speaking world that are brought in for The Bachelor, that's 25 women. But think about King Xerxes. He was bringing in women from 127 provinces. So it was a lot more than 25. And the deal was, in The Bachelor, The Bachelor gets to date these women, and then he sends them home. King Xerxes sleeps with these women and then sends them to his concubine's harem, where he may or may not ever see them again. And then we have uh, essentially this group of women who are living together. It happens in the, in the Bachelor, but then it also happens with Xerxes, but they, they have to live together forever for these women. And in the end, the Bachelor gets, he says, I'm going to have this one to be my wife, if she says yes. King Xerxes says, I'm going to have all these to be my wives but this one's going to be my queen, and I'm not going to ask. She's just going to be what I tell her to be. So it's worse. The bachelor is not as bad as the reign of King Xerxes in Persia. 
But nonetheless, we need to see that what's going on here is not, not only is it not healthy, it is damaging. And it is evidence that the world that Esther lived in and the world that we live in is sinfully broken. That's what we're going to look at this morning is look at this text and see the world is, is very broken. Sin is ravaging everything in the world. And oftentimes we don't know what God is doing. So what does it do to our faith? And we see how simply broken the world is that we have to live in and we question whether or not God is active and participating in this world. Just a couple of comments here. A lot of times this, this chapter is taken one of two directions uh, and I'm actually uncomfortable with both of those. One is a look how great Esther is, look what she does, look how we should emulate her. I'm not sure that that's true. But the other is to say look how awful Esther is and God still uses her. I'm not sure that's true either. Like I look at this text and we're not told what Esther's thinking. We're not told what's going on in Esther's heart. And we know that the Holy Spirit inspires the writers of God's word to let us know what people are thinking, what people are processing and how their hearts are oriented or gives us more details to that end. And the fact that we don't have those details means that we're not supposed to read this text and either dare to be a Mordecai or dare to be an Esther or don't you dare be an Esther. Like, we don't know. The point of this text is not to see how Esther is living, how Mordecai is living, but to see what God is doing in their lives in a sinfully broken world. And, so, and one, one other comment. Anytime you see a character in, in God's narrative, his narrative of Scripture, his grand story, and it's not Jesus, just go ahead and assume that that person's a mixed bag of positive and negative examples. There's nobody in Scripture except Jesus that we're supposed to be just like. And the reason we're supposed to be just like Jesus is because he emulates what God's design is and he is in, perfectly in line with God's law and we can't even be that way. We're broken, we're simply broken. And we don't try to be Jesus so that we can be saved, we just try to be like the one who has saved us. So anytime you look at scripture, just know that every person you read about, if their name's not Jesus, don't assume that scripture's saying, be like this person, but learn from their story. It's recorded for our good so that we can learn. All right, so jumping into this, this world that we live in is sinfully broken. I mean, there's no denying that the world that we live in is sinfully broken. It's definitely no denying that the world that Esther lived in was sinfully broken. I mean, we look at the, the world that Esther lives in, and we, I sort of highlighted how the bachelor is not as bad as Xerxes' reign, but the reality is like we really want to believe that our, our world is not as bad as that because it makes it easier to have faith if you don't feel like things are as broken because you don't feel like you have to have as much faith. And so we need to understand that like, our world is sinfully broken, just like the world of Xerxes and Esther and Mordecai. I mean, you look in verses one through four, I'm not gonna read them all for you here, but you have this king who's in power and he's not a good guy. We established that last week. It is not hard to see that this king who's in power is not a good leader, he's not a good king. We live in a world full of bad leaders, bad kings, we look around the, the nations of the world, and it's the 4th of July, and we are blessed to have the nation that we have. But we even know from our own experience as a nation that if Jesus is not your king, then your king is necessarily not perfect. And not only is he not perfect, your leaders are broken and selfish, and they don't lead the way that God would have them lead all the time, and some none of the time. And so the reality is we live in a world that is full of bad kings and bad leaders, elected and unelected, our nation and other nations. 
We have people in power who want to keep power and use power for their own ends. If you look again in verses 1 through 4, we live in a world just like with Xerxes. Xerxes is being catered to. These young men are like, oh, Xerxes is unhappy. That's going to be bad for us and everybody else. What can we come up with to make him happy? Because if the king isn't happy, we all suffer. So let's cater to the king. You know what might be a good idea for this womanizer? Let's see if we can get a whole bunch of beautiful virgins to come here and sleep with him for, for months on end. Let's cater to him. And so we have the powerful being catered to and the weak being oppressed in, the, in Xerxes' reign. And we find that also in our own world. Now, Hillary and I were watching a show uh, on Amazon Prime. It's from like, the late 90s. It's called The Heat of the Sun. And it's, sort of, it's a story about, it's like sort of murder mysteries set in 1930s Kenya uh, with the expats there. And essentially you see just, just unbelievable racism uh, in this colonialization that's happening in Africa. Before that, we watched a, a show called Island at War, which is what it was like to have the Nazis occupying your town and the oppression there. But it's not just from the 30s and from the 40s. Like, oppression continues. Those who have power abuse their power. Uh, it can be whether it's socioeconomic stratification. We see people who want to protect those with money because they have money so they can have money. We see that we want to protect those who have education. We want those who have a certain educational level to have the power, and we come up with our excuses for that. It can be race, it can be sex, it can be any number of things. But we still live in a world where power protects power and power oppresses the weak. It's the world we live in as well. We live in a world where, if you look at verses 7 and 8 and 12 through 15, we live in a world where, just like for Esther, bad things happen and people are victimized. Young girls are being victimized. Some of them may have been excited to go and be part of the harem, but guaranteed some were not. If you're bringing women from 127 provinces and taking them from whatever, wherever it is they live, from India all the way to the Mediterranean, and you're going to relocate them in south-central Iran, which is where Susa was, where they will never again see their loved ones, their families, they will live probably, statistically speaking, as an unknown concubine of the king, where they will have their needs met, but will live a pointless, isolated life. Nobody wants that. They're being victimized. And we live in a world like that as well. I mean, I was struck by that, this this week. If you think about the, the, this prevalent issue that we have as a nation in the Western world, the issue of pornography. Pornography is based on essentially living like Xerxes here and now. Let me parade as many women through that I do not have to be committed to that can satisfy me and please me and I don't have to remember their name unless I want to see them again. That's what pornography is. And it's rampant in our nation. It's rampant in the church. This is the world we live in may look more sterile on the outside, but the brokenness is just as rancid on the inside. We live in a world where people are orphaned. Esther's an orphan. Death and separation because of death is a result of sin. The world is simply broken. People mourn loss all the time. It happens through the death of a loved one or separation of a loved one. We've, some of you have been pr praying for Andrew Brunson for months now, or over a year, almost two years now, as he's been wrongfully imprisoned in Turkey. His daughter shared at General Assembly a week and a half ago, just thanking us for our prayers. She hasn't seen her dad in 20 months and has no idea when she'll see him again. And the president who's in power, who wants to keep him in prison, was just reelected. This is the world that we live in. 
where people, loved ones are separated from loved ones, where people are oppressed and where people die, and where orphans are left having to be cared for by someone other than their parents. We live in a world, if you look at verses 17 and 18, that section of the chapter ends and Xerxes has now slept with a lot of women and he decides Esther's the best and he throws a big party and it looks like the wicked guy won. He got what he wanted. In Jeremiah and in the Psalms, we find that same sentiment. Why do the ways of the wicked prosper? It looks like he's winning. It looks like this king who's awful got exactly what he wanted. And he got it while God was seemingly silent. And then at the very end of that chapter, we've got men killing men. We've well, wanting to kill men. We've got guys wanting to assassinate their king. And the way that that struck me this week is I thought about the fact that the closest approximation for us is when we see gang-on-gang gang violence. We don't, get, we don't get real wrapped up with being upset about gang-on-gang gang violence. Let bad people kill bad people. Isn't that better for everybody? That's not the position that Mordecai took. It's not the position that Jesus takes. So as we look at this text, we need to understand that our world is very much like the world in which Esther lived. Very much like the world that was being run by Xerxes. And we meet Esther and Mordecai in this text. And what we find is they are God's people. That's why it's highlighted that they're of Jewish descent and that Mordecai was from the line of Benjamin, which we would assume Esther is as well because she's part of his same family. He's her uncle. Uh, and they were taken into exile. Their great-grandparents were taken into exile, and now they live in Susa. And so you have Esther and Mordecai. They're God's people in that city, and they're experiencing this type of oppression, this type of sinful brokenness, and they don't know what God is doing. Esther does not know she's going to be queen. Statistically speaking, she is probably, in her mind, going to be one of the nameless, faceless harem girls that lives forever enslaved, sexually enslaved, to the king of Persia. But the text doesn't tell us what Mordecai and Esther believed in these moments. It doesn't tell us how they were processing just that they were living in this moment. But the reason that it's recorded for us is that we can see God powerfully at work so that we'll know what to believe in a moment like this, that God has not abandoned them, that God is powerfully at work. God's providence is often hidden, but that doesn't make it impotent. God is powerfully at work He's working, and if you look at this chapter, it is just full, chocked full of coincidences that are not coincidences. I'm just going to run through them really quickly. What does the king want in his new queen? He wants her to be young. He wants her to be pretty. He wants her to be a virgin. We'll assume that Esther is a virgin, as she was selected. And how is she described when we meet her? She's beautiful and lovely to look at. She's a young, beautiful woman. What's the king want? A young, beautiful woman. Where does she live? Susa. Where does the king live? Susa. The chances of a young, beautiful woman not being selected if they lived in Susa? Next to none. Maybe if you lived in India, as far as you could get from the king, maybe you could hide. But if you're in Susa in a known commodity, pretty girls in Susa don't have a chance of not being selected for this particular honor. And so you also have Esther winning favor with Haggai, with the eunuch. You have Esther, the way that she's living in the midst of the harem, people respect and are, and are won over by her. You have Mordecai, who has access to get to her and see her, at the, or f- at least find out about her. So, so a baseline for Esther is she feels isolated. She knows she's not because her guardian has access to her, which would be unique, unique amongst so many of that harem. 
We have Xerxes who's enamored with her, but instead of just writing down her name, putting an asterisk next to it, and sleeping his way through the rest of the harem, he says, right here, right now, this is it. He falls in love with her. And when I say falls in love, I mean it in the Xerxes sense, not in a Hallmark movie sense. He decides, yeah, she's the best, and I'm going to go with this one. And then Xerxes shows generosity to the whole, the whole nation, which means the whole nation knows who Esther is, and they like it because they didn't have to pay taxes when she, when, they got, when she became queen. There's a big party. Esther has a positive connotation in the whole realm of Persia. Then later on in that same chapter, Mordecai happens to have an appointment that puts him at the gate right where he can overhear the conversation of two guys that want to kill the king, the king that enslaved his surrogate daughter. And so he's given an opportunity to secure her relationship with the king by telling her, hey, this is what I heard. And she goes and she tells the king in Mordecai's name, and the king notes it. And the last coincidence that we're, what we have here at the end of this chapter is the king notices it, or he notes it in the chronicles of the king, but he doesn't do anything for Mordecai, which was pretty uncommon. Somebody saves your life, especially if you're the king, you make sure that that person is honored, and nothing happens yet for Mordecai. And we'll see that coincidence play out in a couple of chapters. So here's my point. For us as God's people, we can't, what we see, what we see happening, we may not know what God is doing, but we do know it is always the backdrop in which he's doing something. God is always at work. He's always using our actions and the actions of others and our intentions, the intentions of others and the absence of activity and the presence of activity. He's using all of it for his purposes. Now, the goal is not for us as as God's people to become better at sort of figuring out what the coincidences mean. You and I do not have to become more coincidence sensitive. That's not the goal here. The goal is faith. The recording of this chapter of this book for us, for God's people, for generations later, is so that we will know you don't have to know what God is doing. You just know that he is and that that he is active, that he's for you. It's to shape our faith, to help us to have a a sense of security in our relationship with him, that he's for us even when we don't know what he's doing. So it means that God's powerful providence is not thwarted when, when his people experience the sinful brokenness of the world. God is not wringing his hands when his people suffer. He's accomplishing his purposes, and that suffering is forwarding his purposes, and he's faithful. But we also know that that means that God's people are not guaranteed to be insulated from the brokenness of this world. We're not guaranteed to be insulated from suffering. We're actually told to expect it, to expect suffering. And I think for you, if you're like me, I would be be so much more willing to suffer if I knew for sure that I was going to see what God was doing before I died. Like if you could guarantee me that I'm going to see the payoff, okay, great. Because we could take that away from the book of Esther. Well, Esther gets to see it. It all works out in the end. But for so many, it doesn't. We don't see what God is accomplishing. He shows us this picture so we'll see that God actually does work out his purposes even in silence or perceived silence. But it's not a guarantee that you and I will see exactly what he's doing when he's doing it. And so we have to trust him in the midst of it. When we think about this, let's sort of of draw it to Jesus. Jesus' death was the absolute most sinfully broken moment in history, the history of humanity. But in God's providence, the most sinfully broken actions of man on earth were used for the salvation of God's people. There is nothing that happens that God cannot leverage and does not leverage for the good of his people. Always. 
we see it ultimately in Jesus. We see a picture of it and what happens for the people of Israel in the book of Esther. So for you and for me as followers of Jesus, we have to look at life in this broken world and we're tempted to say, man, this world is sinking fast. We've got to abandon ship. And then what churches become is life rafts. That's not the way that God intends for us to live. God is powerfully at work in this world just like he was in that world. It doesn't mean that we don't call sin, sin. It's not that we don't acknowledge the sinful brokenness of the world, but we also in the same breath say that God is for us in this sinful broken world. God is working in this sinful broken world. In my experience, God is working. Which means if I've experienced, some of you have been victimized in so many different ways. Some of you financially, some of you sexually. Some of you relationally, some of you within your family. You know what it's like to be oppressed. You know what it's like to suffer. You know what it's like to wonder, does God even know or care as I'm going through this? The book of Esther reminds us, yeah, he knows, he cares. He's powerfully at work. Some of you have lost loved ones. All of us have lost some loved ones, but some of them, the ache that you feel seems just as fresh today as it did, whether it's 10 years or 10 months ago. Is God for me in my suffering? He is. He knows and he's at work. Some of you have experienced sexual sin and violence just like the girls in this chapter. God is for you. He has not abandoned you. He uses all things for his purposes which are for the good of his people and the glory of his name. It is not without purpose. Some of you have been neglected, abandoned, abused, whether it's by family or by friends or yourself, and you just feel the echo. Esther knew what the echo was like. God is for you in the midst of that. He has not left you. He has not forsaken you. And so I would remind you to remember that God has providentially worked in your story already. He's already if you're a follower of Jesus... He's done so much providentially for you that you should know already. He sent his son for you. His son died for you. He loves you. If he would give his own son for you, what wouldn't he give? Which means everything that's happening in your life doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. doesn't mean that it's not the product of sin. It doesn't mean that it's not broken. It means that it's not without purpose. That God is working his providential purposes all the time. So I would just ask you to reflect on this this week. When you see the sinful brokenness of this world, in the world and in your life, are you letting that shape what you believe about God or are you letting the truth of who God is and what he's done and the fact that he's always working shape the way you see your circumstances? We're either going to let this world tell us what God's like or we're going to let God tell us what he's like and how we can flourish in this world. Let's pray. Father.